Well, it is the third week. Our theme is joy. And as I've been thinking about not only the theme of joy, I, I was thinking about the other themes as well. You know, it begins with hope, peace, joy, love, and then, of course, Christmas Eve will be light. I, I'm realizing more and more that Advent is a season of contrasts. It really is a season of comparisons. I think you'll, you'll agree with me. When we looked at hope, we realized that hope is not just an aspirational wish, as the culture might say. Hope is really, according to the Bible, it's confident assurance. Do you see the contrast, the comparison? Travis taught us last week, the same thing is true for peace, that, that the culture sees peace as like calm circumstances, something on the outside, but in the Bible, peace is a calm soul. It's internal. We're going to see this week that joy, much like the other ones, is an internal issue first. It's really a matter of gladness of heart, not just glee on the face. And you can kind of picture this by thinking about the cartoons where you've seen the, the cartoon character and the heart's just kind of pounding like this, boom, boom, boom. You've seen that before, right? As opposed to perhaps someone who's just got a big smile on their face, but maybe it's plastic, it's artificial, not real. Joy is the pounding of the heart. It's gladness of heart that, yes, does result in eventually an external expression, but it always starts with the inside first. In fact, let me show you in the Bible just three quick verses that connect gladness of heart and Joy. Here's Psalm 16. Look at this verse with me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Do you see where it begins? Internally with a gladness and then it shows up. Here's Psalm, uh, I think it's 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then one of the most well-known ones is Psalm 100. Verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord. Say it with me, with gladness. So in the Bible, gladness of heart and joy are connected. And I think one of the most beautiful verses we see this is John 15, 11. You're in John 15, right? Put your eyes on verse 11 with me. This is our primary text today to help us turn our attention to this theme of a joy. I want to do two things with you today in light of this verse. I want to analyze joy first, just in this verse and its context. And then I want us to apply joy. And that'll be the bulk of our teaching time is the application of what we see in the analysis of this verse. So to begin, let's read the verse all together, can we? John 15, 11, as a congregation, together with me. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And when you read that verse, you may wonder, like, Todd, first of all, what are the things that he spoke to them? Let me walk you through this, understanding more about the phrase, these things. The phrase, these things, really refers in a larger way to what began in chapter 13, verse 1. It's known as the farewell address or the farewell cycle. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 16. So you've got a number of chapters in which Jesus is speaking things. 
In chapter 17, he speaks to his father in the high priestly prayer. It's more vertical. In chapter 18, the crucifixion saga begins. So when you look at what these things refers to in its most in this larger general context, it's going to be chapter 13 through chapter 16. That's what these things refers to. Now, if you were to ask me, what about the most immediate context? I would look at verse 10 and verse 12. What you're going to find there are a couple of themes. You're going to find the phrase, keep my commandments, opening verse 10 and opening verse 12. You're going to find the themes of loving and obeying in verse 10 and verse 12. And you're going to find those themes of loving and obeying throughout chapters 13 through 16. In fact, here's something quite intriguing. In 1415, Jesus said this, that loving him would result in keeping his commands. And yet in this chapter, verse 10 of 15, he says keeping his commandments helps us abide in his love. And so I think we have to admit this gladly, that in the last words of Jesus, in these things, loving and obeying are just uh, inseparably connected. They're almost like reversible principles and conclusions. They mean much the same thing to Jesus. If you love him, you will obey him. And when you obey him, you'll understand his love. This is really the gist of what it means to remain, as a key word in this farewell cycle, the larger context, to remain, to abide in him and let his words abide in you. So as you read through the larger context, even the most immediate one, all summarized with this phrase, these things, he's talking about obedience, loving, remaining, abiding. And he's saying this, this is the pathway to joy. Now, I want to make sure that that is introduced because I think that's really what he's aiming at when he says next that he spoke these things to them. See the phrase spoken to you? Here, Christ is not aiming at just some audible experience. He clearly is intending to say this. I'm expecting obedience. Say the word with me. Obedience. He's saying to these disciples, I've spoken this to you. And I'm intending for you to obey it. James would say later that we are to be doers of the word and not what? Hearers only. So don't think that Christ here is saying, hey guys, I'm kind of giving you a speech. Take good notes and do what you want to with it. Hope you're enjoying this consulting session. There's no sense in which Christ here is acting as consultant. He's giving clear commands. He's speaking them. And without any doubt, he's expecting Obedience. In fact, just jot this down. Though the New Testament is in Greek and Aramaic, Jesus was a Jew, knew the Jewish culture, knew the law. Did you know that in the Jewish language, the word hear and the word obey have the same root word? In the Jewish culture, no one ever thought you could hear something and not actually do it. That was just normal to the Jew. So I just want to bring you both cultural and textual evidence here that when Jesus said over several chapters and even in the immediate context, I'm speaking some things to you, he clearly meant with the intent that you will do them. Now, as that occurs, the verse tells us, again, we're just analyzing the verse. 
We're making sure we understand what the Bible says to us. The analysis then says that two things happen. They're referenced by the two that's in the verse. Do you see them? When we obey what Jesus says, first of all, his joy is in us. Notice that it first starts with Jesus's joy being in us. It's a personal possessive pronoun. And then that results, there's a second that, in our joy being full. So Jesus shares his joy with us. This is part of the idea of, of, of obeying and remaining and loving and abiding that we now experience the joy of Jesus to the degree that it makes our joy full. Now, a couple of questions arise when I see this. And the word full there simply means complete, uh, overflowing, uh, satisfying. A couple of questions arise. One is, is this two joys or one? In other words, does, does Jesus give us his joy and then that becomes our joy and it's the only truly satisfying joy we ever have? It's deep and complete and full to the max. Or is he saying that Jesus gives us his joy and it is added to like the natural human emotion of joy, which God does give all people. We're made in his image, so there is a natural human emotion of joy. But at best, human emotional joy without Jesus is what the Rolling Stones knew all about, right? I can't, okay, I'll leave it there with you, right? That's the best we can do without the joy of Jesus. So is it Christ's joy intersecting with just God-made joy that suddenly we, we experience deep, satisfying, full joy? Or is it that it's his joy all along and he gives us all of his joy and that's the joy we know? I don't think the answer really matters. The point is, listen to this, joy comes from Jesus. So whether he's making natural human joy finally complete and full, or whether he's just giving us all of his joy, it is from Jesus, he shares his joy with us. That's a very intimate and it's very personal. It's very impacting that through obedience to what Jesus says, we experience more, what's this? Not of your joy, but of his joy. And then that actually makes our joy complete and full. What a beautiful thing to have a relationship with Jesus. Amen. He shares his joy with us. I'm also left with one other question when I read this is, where does Jesus get his joy? Like he's sharing something with us, and regardless of whether it's completing God-made joy already given to humans or whether it's just completely his joy and then given to us, this idea that Jesus has joy, where did he get that? I'll answer that Tuesday on the podcast, so listen in, Okay. I think you'll find it quite intriguing and hopefully very helpful. Again, as we look more at this, we begin to see that Jesus shares his joy with us. And it's what makes our joy full, deep, complete. So there is no joy apart from the joy that Jesus gives. And notice that the joy he gives is accessed. It's experienced through obedience. 
So if I were to give you the analysis of this verse in one sentence, this is not your take-home truth. You're taking notes in your journal. Just jot this down. If I were to give you the one-sentence analysis of this verse, it would be this. Joy is from Jesus to believers through obedience. Now, let's apply this. Let's apply what we've seen in our analysis of this singular verse, its larger context as well as its immediate context, that joy is from Jesus to believers through obedience. Let's apply this. Let's do it through a few questions. First of all, where am I trying to find joy? And it's a fool's errand if the answer to that question is void of obeying Jesus' words. So it does not matter what answer you give to that question. If your answer is void of obeying the words of Jesus, you will not find joy. Because the Bible says joy is given by Jesus to believers through obedience. Now, my pastoral spidey sense says this. Some of you had a light bulb just go off. And here's what that light bulb said. That's why I'm frustrated. It's clicking for you now. You're frustrated because you're trying to find joy in all kinds of avenues and pathways, and none of them involve obeying Jesus. You've been wondering for months or weeks or possibly years, why why, I keep, why do I keep hitting this lid? Why am I just consistently frustrated? Because your pursuit of joy is void of obeying the words of Jesus. So you will not experience joy. But let's ask this question as well. Knowing that that is true, a better question would be, what do I need to obey today? In the pursuit of joy, what do I need to obey? And we could even narrow this down even more and say, what, what one thing do I need to obey today in order to experience the joy of Jesus in the fullest, most satisfying manner? What's the one thing I should obey today? So I want to spend the bulk of our time that's left talking about obedience because I believe the Bible teaches that obedience is the avenue, the pathway to full joy. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full, my joy be in you. Are you following me? So let's just take the Bible for what it says. Obedience is the pathway to joy. Let's talk about obedience for a bit. I want to do that in two angles. I want to talk about just kind of church-wide congregation. We'll even use the word collective obedience, and then more on the lines of personal, individual obedience. With this aim, maybe you can begin to apply the truth that we've analyzed and maybe even answer some of your own questions about maybe why you found such frustration lately instead of joy. Let's think about congregational, collective obedience. You know, our main aim here is to develop devoted followers. Can you say those three words with me? Develop devoted followers. That's really what we're all about here. We do it in three ways. We celebrate the gospel, we grow in community, and we serve the mission. You see that expressed in all kinds of ways, but if you boil it all down, 
That's what First Assembly Church collectively, congregationally is all about, developing devoted followers, making disciples who make disciples locally, globally. That's our aim. We didn't make it up. It's the command of Jesus. We're his servants, so we gladly do what he says. Let's think about those three ways in which we develop devoted followers, and and let's kind of just take a moment and apply the idea of obedience to that and, and pursuing joy like celebrating the gospel. So did you know that one of the first ways that we celebrate the gospel is by, first of all, just accepting the gospel and taking our stand on it as our only way to be saved? In fact, the moment you became a Christian, you celebrated the gospel. Do you realize that? So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple, The very first time you celebrated the gospel is when you accepted Jesus and you put your feet on the gospel, the good news that Christ lived, died, and was raised to reconcile sinners to God. When you put your feet on that as the only way to be made right with God, you celebrated the gospel. And this was an act of obedience. Watch this. Acts 17.30 says this. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So when you became a Christian, you were actually obeying, and that explains why there was such joy when you trusted Christ and why there is such joy with all the angels over one sinner who repents because you were celebrating the gospel when we gather together as believers and musically, um, verbally, horizontally, uh, vertically, in all kinds of ways, We rehearse the gospel, we celebrate the gospel, we sing it, we hear it preached, we read it, we say it in prayers. Those are all ways in which the gospel continues to blanket us and reach into us and mold us and shape us. It is so vital that we always have our feet planted firmly on the good news of Jesus Christ, that we celebrate the gospel. We do this each week tangibly through communion. We've been holding off in this month of Advent season so we can anticipate the coming of Christ in the greatest way. And next Sunday will be our time in which we'll actually experience communion, a tangible expression of rehearsing the gospel. Our staff right now is involved in an exercise in which every Monday morning we pick on someone to share the gospel in 60 seconds. Now, I realize there's no verse that says you got to do it in 60 seconds. But it's a great way for us to practice saying the the components of the gospel, God, man, Christ response, in a a kind of a a quick, singular way to practice what might happen at the counter, in the driveway, over the fence, on the phone with someone who doesn't know Jesus, and how we can take advantage of every opportunity, make the most of our time, and share the gospel winsomely, but also succinctly. I'd encourage your small groups. You ought to try this. Start each small group by drawing a name out of a hat and saying, okay, it's uh, Joe's turn to share the gospel in 60 seconds. I say that because most of us assume the gospel. We're not sure we really know it. But what if you had 60 seconds with someone who was on their deathbed and they ask you, how can I know that I can be right with God? Could you, in a short amount of time, give the essentials for someone to know that God will save them? Again, this is all just a matter of celebrating the gospel, gathering together, making the weekend gathering a priority, knowing the gospel, rehearsing it tangibly, musically, 
in all kinds of ways because that is the foundation of our footing. Are you obeying in those areas, learning the gospel, attending the celebration of the gospel, participating in communion as a believer, all these different ways? Is that a part of your lifestyle? Is it a prioritized aspect of your lifestyle or is it just an add-on? The Bible calls us to not forsake assembling together one of the reasons is because it's the moment that we in so many ways rehearse the core foundation, the gospel. Think about this idea of growing in community. Are you part of a smaller community than just the larger group? In other words, does accountability and community and relationship, are those words that would describe your involvement within the body of Christ here? Or with words like isolation, avoidance, are those words that describe you? You know, there are more than 150 one another's in the Bible. So the Bible knows nothing about individualism, isolation. It knows about joining together as a body with different parts the ear, the eye, the hand, the foot, but it is one body, Christ is the head. And so there's a connectedness that goes with being a Christian. You hear me okay? There is a connectedness that goes along with being a Christian. We're connected to the body of Christ, universally, yes, but locally too. So are you connected or are you simply living in the corners kind of watching? I admit that at times it's hard to step out of the shadows and connect, but that's where community really happens. Are you in a small group, smaller than just a large room? Think about the third way we obey collectively, serving the mission. In what ways do you, whether informally or formally, look outside of yourself? In what ways are you investing in others? You know, often the reason that we're not connected in communities is because we are so focused on ourselves that it, it actually isolates us unintentionally. All we talk about is ourselves. All we think about is ourselves. And so when we're with others, we tend to make that the focus of every conversation, every action, every expectation ourselves. And sometimes people will will kind of distance themselves from people whose, whose only view is themselves. One of the best ways to make relationships and to make friends is to have a, a view towards others. Start investing in those outside of you. As a church, we should have a view beyond the back wall of our building. Amen? We want to fill up this place. Sure, we're working on that now. We're trying to make sure we have enough seating at both services. But I hope our vision isn't just to fill the room up. I hope our vision is to blanket our town with the gospel and further... Our heart, our eyes should be on the fields that are white to harvest, a 435 type of mindset to serve the mission. So how are you investing in others? Let me ask you some even more pointed questions. Who is next to go? You know, we have a real sending kind of culture, a real multiplying culture. Who in our body is next to go? And what are we doing to help send them? Are there people being raised up in our small groups, in our different ministries, they're expressing the desire to go. And are we rallying around them to say, we will send you. We'll be good rope holders while you go down into the pit, so to speak. 
serving the mission. I was thinking this week about our, our vision for 2035 to see as many God-led people as possible go to 100 different gospel outposts, 25 of them being church plants in Iowa. We got 12 years to pursue that with passion and intensity and fervency and courage. We need every single campus on board. We need all of our network churches thinking along the same lines, multiplication, reproduction. This is what it means to serve the mission, thinking outside of ourselves, investing in what God is doing, especially in places where there's little access. Now, normally, we think about least access areas. We think about other cultures across one of the oceans, and rightly so. Can I just bring to your attention one other area that we know God's kind of leading us in, and we're just still exploring, but we're, we're exploring with the intent of trying to do as much as we can and while it might not be a, officially a least access area, I think there's some commonalities. And it's, in, it's in, uh, in regards to rural areas in Iowa. Like if we think about planting 25 churches over the next 12 or 13 years, along with our network churches, it's going to have to be beyond just the major cities. There's not 25 major cities in Iowa, right? In fact, the vast majority of Iowa is rural. And right now, while we're meeting in this room in one of the largest cities in Iowa, there's a lot of other places where there's not a Walmart, or there's not a Costco, and there's not a Sam's, but there's a Casey's. And that's about all there is. But there's committed Christians gathering, and there's not really a solid church in the area. There's, there's hardly any stoplights. There's not a lot of intersections. There's a lot of necessary and needed farm ground. There's lost people, and there's Christians. And one thing that our church has been working with our convention on and just kind of partnering with this what could we do to help plant and see a church in a rural area in Iowa? I'm convinced that if we're going to get to 25, it's going to mean planting in some rural areas like Elkhorn, Elkader, Guttenberg, places where there's just a few people. There's probably a Casey's at intersection, but, but they're meeting together in some fashion in someone's home. What would it look like for those people in our church to partner in some way to provide a, a better platform, an environment, and a place to reproduce, to see God multiply disciples there. So I want to just say this to anyone who's watching or listening from some area like that. You're listening and you're watching to a pastor who's part of a group of pastors in a church that we would love to see what God could do through us and you together in that rural area. Reach out to us. Love to talk to you, see what the next step might be. As we think about what it looks like to plant either a video venue, a campus, or a church of something like that in an area where there may not be a lot of people per se, but there's a need for a solid congregation, a solid church, God's people under God's word with God's leaders. What would that look like? It's all part of this idea of serving the mission. So I want to ask you, what part are you playing in that? So collectively, think about your obedience in regards to what our church is committed to based on the word of God, to develop devoted followers. And we do that three ways. Celebrating the gospel, say it with me, growing in community and serving the mission. Are you actively obeying in ways that further what God's doing in this local assembly? But think with me about your personal individual obedience, would you? Things like Bible reading, 
We bring this up a lot on purpose because there's no other singular habit that will affect your life like reading your Bible on a regular basis. There's not one. It is the singularly most dramatically changing, life-altering habit you can begin is to read your Bible on a regular basis. Now, some have asked me, well, Todd, what's regular? Here's how First Family, here's the ideal, and here's what we are promoting. We're, we're saying read it every day. Amen, church? Read your Bible every day. When we survey our church to see who's reading it regularly, we ask you, are you reading it at least five times a week? So if you're kind of the minimalist, go for five, okay? But I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to push on you. Man, read the Bible every day. It's the source of life change. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to, a, to refine your character, change your habits. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 says this, that we thank God that when you received the word of God, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as what it truly is, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. And I think one of my greatest, if not the greatest joy I have in pastoring among you is that you love the scriptures. And to be frank with you, you've got a pastor who loves the Bible and I love to preach it, love to teach it and share it with you. And I find great joy that when you hear this and you receive this, you don't receive it as my opinion. You don't receive it as just another lecture. You receive it as the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. Church, read your Bible. It's the singular, the singular most important thing you could do to see your life change. Think about other habits. Prayer, interceding for others, the confession of sin, the adoration of God, treasuring Jesus in those moments through talking to him and, and, and magnifying him, adoring and, and and just in amazement, wondering the beauty of Jesus. Things like generosity and sharing not just your souls, but your stuff. Having a sacrificial spirit. You know, I know a lot of folks who give at this time of year, they kind of give their year-end gift, and they're what I call rescuers. They like kind of the last-minute large gift, and they can sometimes do it for wrong reasons because they're, getting attention, and folks say, man, that's so great that you helped us pave the parking lot. That's so great that you helped us fill in the blank, but they don't really give regularly. And I just want to encourage anyone here who may just kind of be the last-minute, end-of-year giver. That's good, thank you. But I would encourage you to move towards regular, and can I use the phrase almost anonymous kind of giving? Just sacrificially be generous throughout the regular course of the year, it really helps your local church kind of stay on track through the highs and lows. So we say this a lot. Give to and through your church on a regular basis. Be a generous person throughout the course of the year. How about things like gratefulness, not criticism, but a spirit of appreciation and, and edifying others with our words or the spirit of uh, the actions of purity, watching what our viewing habits, our listening habits. These are all just areas of obedience that Christ calls us to. These are the words that he has spoken to us. 
in various areas. And our willingness to pursue obedience is directly related to our experience, watch this, of his joy completing our joy. So as I've walked us through congregational obedience to some degree, individual obedience, perhaps, again, there's a light bulb that went off in your head, like, so that's why I'm frustrated, because you've been pursuing joy apart from obeying Jesus. No wonder you don't have his joy. The Bible says that he spoke these things to us, implying he intended for us to obey them, so that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be complete. We experience joy when we pursue obedience. So how's the obedience thing going for you? There's the answer to joy. And this is why I think our take-home action is so blatantly plain and simple this morning. It's not a take-home truth, though it is a truth. Instead, it's more like a take-home action. I want to leave you with a simple statement of intention. I will pursue obedience to Jesus in order to experience the joy of Jesus. I will pursue obedience to Jesus in order to experience the joy of Jesus. In fact, would you read this with me? Together, we read our singular verse earlier. Let's just read our take-home action this morning, plain and simple and to the point, but so theologically and practically accurate. Together, church, I will pursue obedience to Jesus in order to experience the joy of Jesus. Now, as this circulates in your heart, in your head, I want to end by just verifying that this is true. I want to give you two Christmas snapshots that will legitimize what I'm teaching you, that will bring even more credence to John 15, the singular verse, the immediate context, and the larger context. I want you leaving here this morning completely committed to joy, so much that you'll obey anything Jesus says. Two snapshots. The first one is the mother of Jesus, Mary. When the angel came to her and said that she was sovereignly selected to bear the Son of God, she responded with these words that, that be it unto me according to your word. In other words, my yes is on the table, I'll obey. Whatever that means, I'm your servant. I'll do it. And the next verse is a, is a section of Scripture that begins what we call technically Mary's Magnificat. It's her prayer of joy. Look out how it begins in Luke 1.47. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit, say it, church, rejoices in God my Savior. This is her first word after saying to the Lord, I'll do whatever you say. So can we just admit Obedience equals joy. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is proof positive. But more poignantly than Mary's illustration is the life 
of the one she gave birth to. Jesus, son of God and son of man. And when the writer of Hebrews is describing the life of Jesus, which began with his condescension in becoming a man and living among us for 33 years as the perfect fulfillment of the law, the perfect sacrifice for sinners, the perfect penalty and payment for sin, when he described that whole experience for Jesus, he used these words that he says that he endured the cross because of the, say it with me, joy set before him. Who talks about 33 years of being misunderstood, misinterpreted, ending in a sacrificial death? Who talks about that as a journey of joy? I'll tell you who does. Jesus, who obeyed the Father's will perfectly. The joy that he experienced, and I'll say more about this on Tuesday in the Extra Point podcast, was the joy of completely obeying the Father's will, even when it included the cross. Proof positive, obedience equals joy. So if you're wondering, what's my next step when I leave this room? It's not to drink water from leaky wells. It's to find the source of water that never runs dry, and that is obedience to the one and only Jesus, the Savior of your soul. And in obeying him, he will give you springs of living water that never run dry. He will give you his joy, which will make your joy complete. Happy Advent. Let's pray. All of our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I don't want to be pastorally negligent in this moment. So let me ask you, has God identified for you and has he pressed in on your soul with this one thing that you need to obey? The one area He turned the flashlight on, the flashlight of his word, and he's shining into the corners of your heart, the basement of your life. And in his great love, he's saying to you right now, here's that area where I want you to obey. I'll bring you joy like you've never known in that obedience. That's the promise of John 15. Right now, the devil's trying to lure you and bait you and pull you from the beautiful voice of Jesus calling you to joy through obedience. He's trying to lure you and pull you and distract you through other means that seem like they're going to work, but they never do. They're always a, a step short. That They fall shy of what you're really longing for. You're right. It's not complete joy. It's not satisfying or overflowing. It's not full. It's a mirage. So I urge you, listen to the compellingly beautiful voice of Jesus this morning, calling you to obedience that will equal joy you've never known. 
And whatever that one area is right now that the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on and pressing on, would you please, for the sake of your joy, would you just say yes? Would you just say yes? Holy Father, in this moment, with your spirit ever so present in us and among us, and doing what he does best, pointing us to Jesus, would you increase, would you deepen the appetite of every genuine believer in this room to the degree that there's nothing they uh, would hear you say that they wouldn't do because their thirst for joy is that deep. And I pray that the avenue of obedience as the pathway to joy would be a, a compelling invitation to walk with you, to remain in you, to abide in you, to love you by obeying your commandments, to obey your commandments so that we abide in your love, that all of these things would be deeply inwardly just heightened and increased so that whatever you would ask of us, our yes is already on the table would make us a great commission people who are teaching ourselves and others to obey everything Jesus said. Would you stand with me, church? Now, Lord, hear our voices in this final refrain that we sing. We bring our joyful praise to you with humble, glad hearts. We want this to be seen on our faces, heard in our voices, seen in our postures. So God, all praise to you from a people who joyfully and humbly stand alone on the gospel as our only way to be saved. And the church said together, amen.